I'm Eitan Weinstein. And I'm Naor Menninger. And you're listening to Two Nice Jewish Boys. This podcast is made in collaboration with the Jewish Journal. Someone must have been telling lies about Joseph K. For without having done anything wrong, he was arrested one fine morning. This perfectly crafted sentence opens probably one of the most important novels of the 20th century, written by probably one of the most important novelists in modern literature. It was written by a 30-something-year-old Jew from Prague. In his short life, he went on to write several books that would make his name almost synonymous with modern literature. That name is Franz Kafka. But what most people don't know about the legendary author is that Kafka and his work almost disappeared into oblivion. Almost. But thankfully, there was Max Brod. In his new book, The Last Trial, writer Benjamin Balint... In his new book, The Last Trial, writer Benjamin Balint tells for the first time the full story of Kafka's legacy and how it survived against all odds. 2NJB is honored to be joined by Benjamin to hear about his new book and the story of Kafka. Thanks for joining us. I'm pleased to be here. Did it survive, though? Did what survive? The legacy. Did it... it... Let's start from the ending, maybe. Well, the ending is um, essentially that I'm sitting one day at the Supreme Court of Israel in Jerusalem, and uh, I'm sitting in one of the alcoves next to uh, the plaintiff, and her name is Chava Hofe. And she has in her apartment on Spinoza Street in Tel Aviv priceless manuscripts that had uh, been written and had belonged to Franz Kafka. That's the end of the story. And um, Manuscripts that no one had seen yet. No one had seen. And wow. So how do we know she actually has them? Well, they're actually split into three places, uh, these manuscripts. Um, part were in this uh, apartment that she shared with many cats on Spinoza Street uh, that had formerly belonged to her mother. We'll get to her, uh, Esther. Part were in uh, her, the family bank vaults in Tel Aviv. And the last third was in the bank vault in Zurich, Switzerland. How, many, how many names? Like, in what, like Chava, daughter of Esther, living on Spinoza Street, yeah. has manuscripts by Kafka. It's just like... Who and, were inherited to broad. And yeah. I'll get to one more thing about names, by the way, which is that in the trial room that day, it came up that the Germans, basically, to give a, uh, two seconds of background, the trial that day, there were... Th- it was a triangle of interests, right? You had Chava Hofe representing herself. Her mother had died in 2007 at the age of 100. You had the Germans represented by their, in essence, the equivalent of the National Library. It's called the German Literature Archive in Marbach, Germany. And then you have the Israeli side of the triangle represented by the National Library of Israel, the Sifriyal Umid. And they're each sort of making these claims on these priceless papers that were in Spinoza Street and these other two locations. What's in the papers? Well, nobody really knew. Um, that That's the one of the great ironies of this case, is you had a case that protracted for more than eight years over a body of manuscripts that uh, nobody had really... You don't know the scope of these manuscripts. At a certain point during the trial, the court forced uh, the Swiss bank to open its vaults and let in a team of experts, legal and literary experts, to actually inventory what was there, an exact answer to your question. Um, But what was there is, for example, um, the literary estate of Max Brod himself, who was Kafka's best friend and champion, and it's only because of Max Brod that we even have heard the name Kafka today, and we'll get to that. But in essence, um, 
the the manuscripts were all mixed up. So you had Max Brod's diaries that shed early light on his relationship with Kafka. Kafka's biographers, some of whom I interviewed for this book, were dying to see this material. Uh, you had original manuscripts by Kafka. So uh, the mother, Esther, had in 1988 sold for $2 million dollars Uh, at Sotheby's in London, just one piece from this archive, and that was the manuscript copy of the trial, which you opened with just now. Mm-hmm. But there were priceless things. I, I myself saw... They had everything originally, right? Yeah. I mean, I myself saw, for example, uh, postcards that Kafka had written home when he was traveling with Max Brod, um, the original manuscripts of his stories, um, letters... Um, wow. The original uh, copy of his letter to his father, which ran to 100 pages. Um, just amazing 100 stuff. 100 page letter to his father. Yeah, which, by the way, was never delivered because his, he gave it to his mother. He was too fearful. It's really an indictment of the father. And he was too fearful to deliver it to his father directly. Wow. So he gave it to his mother. His mother took one look at it and said, no, I'm not delivering it. So this was an... Everything about Kafka is unfinished or undelivered. <laughs> she took one look at it and she said, I'm not reading this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Everything about Kafka is unfinished. Each of his three novels he left unfinished. It was only Max Brod that published them posthumously. The letter was undelivered. Everything about Kafka is undelivered or a message that arrived too late or unfinished. That's so what I love about the story. That's, it's amazing. Let, let's go back, though, to... Uh, the beginning a bit because I myself don't, I assume our listeners don't know much about Kafka. It's one of those names that just kind of, you hear it and it's so, uh, it's so legendary. He's one of the few writers that you don't have to have read a single word of Kafka to understand the adjective Kafkaesque. Yeah. And in a yeah. sense, this book is not about Kafka because there's a mountain of scholarship on Kafka. I'm no Kafka scholar. It's about the literary afterlife of Kafka, how Kafka got to Tel Aviv in the first place, how it made that journey from Prague to Palestine after his death. Um, but you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, you know, Kafka is, is subject to so many interpretations. That's yeah. another irony of this case. Kafka himself, you know, is, it's impossible to grasp him. And yet everybody after his lifetime is trying to grasp and to claim his legacy. Right. So, but can you tell us, can you give us a bit of a background of who, where he was? I mean, he was from Prague, where... Kafka was, in essence... Um, thrice alienated or you might say he was a triple minority he was in the austro-hungarian empire there was a minority of the of czechoslovakia within czechoslovakia there's a minority of german speakers within the minority of german speakers there's a minority of jews kafka belonged to that minority was he gay too Was he gay? Not, not as far as I know. He, was, uh, he had several lovers. He was engaged twice. Uh, I also tell the story of his women in this, in this book. But it's with a very Max Brod, we have no evidence of any... No, although they were extremely close. They traveled together. They summered together. They went swimming together. All of this is in the diaries. Okay. Um, that we have Kafka's diaries also uh, due to the efforts of Max Brod, by the way. In essence, basically, uh, so Kafka was... As, as most people know, unknown during his lifetime. He died just short of his 41st birthday of tuberculosis. It seems that if you're a famous writer, you want to get tuberculosis. So, um, die young. So after, after the funeral, Max Broad went to the family apartment and collected all these manuscripts, thousands of pages of unfinished masterpieces. Among those papers, he also found two handwritten notes addressed to him both of which said, basically, Dear Max, I want you to burn all of these manuscripts unread. Why? And this is the ethical dilemma that Max Broad faced. Um, he knew that Kafka was an extreme perfectionist, uh, and 
almost of divine standards. He didn't want anyone else to touch his work after he died, I think. Um, and he wasn't interested in fame or fortune. So it's a mystery. He doesn't, in these notes, explain the justification for, for this instruction. But that was his last wish. He left no will himself. The only will he left were these two last notes to Max Broad. It all starts, this whole trial starts, in this ethical dilemma of Max Broad. Do you betray your best friend in favor of literary posterity? Or do you betray literary posterity and fulfill the wishes of this friend and burn everything? Betray Damn. best friend. Every single day. Damn. Betray best friend. Not even for, just for pizza. <laughs> not for literary posterity. Well, so Max Broad chose as he chose. Not only did he violate uh, his, his best friend's last wish, Kafka's last will, but he dedicated the, he did the opposite he dedicated the rest of his life and the rest of his energies to championing kafka publishing kafka and saving his legacy in essence he rescued kafka several times he rescued kafka from himself from burning these manuscripts mm -hmm. then several years later it's 1939 and uh, max brought on the very day that prague is occupied by german forces flees with his wife with a single suitcase into the suitcase guess what he's pay his packed all of Kafka's papers. He, f he is on the last train that's allowed out of Czechoslovakia across the Polish border. Wow. The only place that would accept him is here, mandatory Palestine. So he arrives here penniless uh, with a single suitcase, although that single suitcase contains Kafka's literary afterlife, and it happens to be priceless. I mean, worth millions, right? Do we, I mean, is it worth millions at that point? Well, um, probably not. I mean... Yeah, so do we have any indication or insight into why Max Broad decided to choose this way? Meaning... He himself very, felt very defensive. He wrote the first biography of Kafka in 1937, and he addresses your point, which is he justifies why he did this. He says, oh yeah, I mentioned to Kafka when Kafka was still alive that I, I could never bring myself to do this. So in essence, Max Broad is telegraphing to us that Kafka was extremely clever in choosing the person least capable of, filling his, of fulfilling his last wishes, right? In other words, Kafka had it both ways. He could give these last instructions and also feel that they wouldn't be carried out necessarily. Wow. But just to jump a little bit ahead, in 1939, he arrives with his, Max Brod arrives here penniless with his suitcase and almost immediately finds a job at Habima Theater. He becomes the dramaturg for the rest of his life at Habima. He works there, I think, four days a week, and the rest of the time he's working on Kafka's manuscripts, which require editing and publishing. To do so, he needs help. In German, by the way? Uh, all of Kafka, yeah, Kafka wrote only in German, um, <clears throat> except for a letter that he wrote to his Hebrew teacher in Hebrew, but we'll get to that. There's a very fluent letter that Kafka wrote in Hebrew. But yeah, his, his fiction is all in German. So Max Brod, who is himself a German speaker, who himself had much more acclaim than Kafka in Prague. He was the center of a literary circle. He was winning prizes. He was extremely well-connected. He was outgoing where Kafka was introverted, the opposite type. In the end, he published 80 books of fiction, of philosophical essays, of plays, of, of studies of Kafka. Okay, so he arrives here, he's working on these manuscripts, he needs help, he hires a fellow Prague emigre named Esther Hoffe, who herself had to flee. And they become, uh, after Max Brod, uh, his wife dies in 1942, they become kind of a menage a trois, as the daughter Chava described it to me. And extremely close, these, these three Prague emigres feeling kind of out of place in Tel Aviv, out of step with the climate, both literary, literally and the literary climate. 
and they become extremely close, these, these three. So it's Esther Hoffe, her wife Otto, and Max Broad, right? Her husband. Her husband, sorry. And Max is at their house almost every weekend. Uh, he's working, as I say, very intensively with Esther Hoffe in his apartment. Uh, and he helps to raise the two children of the Hoffes. Uh, there's a theme, by the way, of childlessness in the story. Kafka had no children, Max Broad had no children, and Chava Hoffe had no children. So he helps raise the two children of Esther and Otto Hoffe. Their names are Chava and Ruti, and uh, they develop a very close relationship. Max Broad uh, is collaborating on plays with Shin Shalom. He's extremely active in the cultural life of Tel Aviv. He wins the Bialik Prize in 1948 for one of his novels. Uh, and he dies in 1968. When he dies in 1968, he, in his will, he says to Esther, look, I couldn't really pay you for all of your decades of work with me, but I can at least give you all of Kafka's papers. And his will is carried out in 1968, and Esther inherits all of this. Now, what she does after Max Broad dies in 1968, she never dared to do during his lifetime. She starts selling things. I mentioned already the Sotheby's incident. She sells letters, right? Um, I mean, imagine a single manuscript from this collection in her house with the cats on Spinoza Street is worth $2 million. And there this are many... Like that's ma the now you're speaking about the mother. The mother, Esther. Now you jump to the daughter because the daughter is with the cats. So I'm, no, well, the mother also... Ah, was, was also a cat obsession. Yeah, 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 yeah. But this is, this is manuscripts that have already been... Uh, that, that Max brought, already brought to the Habima? Meaning, uh, did, he, did he make plays of them? I mean, how did people read these yet? Some of them he published because he worked on publishing the three novels after Kafka died. So that's The Trial and America and The, the Castle. Oh, um, okay. He publishes the short story. So a lot of these are just the originals of things that are already published. But as originals, because they have Kafka's sort of editorial marks, um, they're just worth, they're, they're okay. priceless. Okay, right? I see, yeah. Even if they've already been published. Mm -hmm. But when she sells uh, Hoffa... The mother. Esther, yeah. Esther, when she sells it for the first time, is it legal? What does the Israeli law say by then, by the 60s? So that's an excellent question. And in 1973, there was the first court case about this. And the court, the Mechozi, uh, the district court in Tel Aviv, rules in the favor of Esther Hoffe that she can do with these manuscripts as she wishes, that the will of Max Broad was to be fulfilled. So the law... Over the will of Kafka. Did they, were they aware of the will of Kafka? Yes, but uh, strangely enough, uh, and that's maybe the original sin of this whole story, the uh, rights of Max Broad himself to this material were never adjudicated in a court of law. Nobody mm -hmm. ever uh, challenged Max Broad's ownership. Mm -hmm. But when the court in 1973 uh, had to rule on, the, on whether Max Broad could bequeath them to Esther Hoffe, they... Uh, affirmed her rights, and that's why she was able to sell things, and yes, legally. Now we get to, just to jump to the end of the story, 2007, Esther Hoffe dies at the age of 100. She, in turn, gives everything to her two daughters, Ruti and Chava. At that point, this trial that I write about starts. Because by now because, there is a law. Well, because the State of Israel, through the National Library and through its lead lawyer, Mayor Heller, steps in and says, at the last moment, before the will is about to be uh, to, to go through, to be made probate, the uh, National Library steps in and says, wait, 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 wait. These are national cultural heritage. They do not belong in private hands. They're too important for private hands. They belong to the State of Israel, in this case, to the National Library. The grounds for that, among others, 
are two things. There's the legal and the ideological. The legal is that Max Brod in his will said two conflicting things. Sometimes writers, you know, they're, they trade in ambiguity. And he says, on the one hand, I give you, Esther Hoffe, everything to do with as you wish. On the other hand, I wish that before you die, which she did in 2007, you would arrange for the proper deposit of this priceless material in an archive, such as the National Library in Jerusalem or another library here or abroad. That's the legal. The ideological grounds that, that the National Library had is, look, Kafka is a Jewish writer, albeit he wrote in German, but he's a deeply Jewish writer. As such, it's as if the assumption in this court case, which is very interesting to me, is, is that even a diaspora writer who never stepped foot in Israel, who died before there was a state, the end of his story somehow should belong in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. It's a very interesting relationship between the state and the diaspora. I mean, you can't think of a more paradigmatic diaspora writer than Kafka, right? Mm-hmm. And yet, even he belongs in Jerusalem under this assumption. Because As what if, is Judaism if not diasporism, <clears throat> in a sense? Well, or, or that the diaspora story has its culmination here. In other words, we think of a return not just of people of mm-hmm. exiles from the four corners of the earth, but also of culture and of cultural property, and in this case of the manuscripts, the textual property, the textual heritage of the Jewish diaspora. But to me it seems like, I mean, it's a nice story, but I guess my the libertarian side of me says, this doesn't belong to the... I mean, but they wait, have no right to it, but unless Max Broad... I mean, this is just... A, when it comes down to it, it's a matter of property rights. So that's um, exactly when I'm standing in the Supreme Court that day in 2016 to bring us to the end, because it went through the three stages, first the family court, then the district court, and finally the Supreme Court. That's exactly the argument that Chava Hofe is making, which is this is a family matter. These are This is personal property. This is an attempt of state appropriation of personal private property. In other words, it's an incursion into my privacy. Why? Because among other things, as I said before, the Max Broad estate and the Kafka estate are by now all mixed up, right? And she told me, and I was able to meet her and sit with her for, for many hours, um, she told me that that was one of her concerns, was that somebody else is now going to be deciding what to publish, what to put in the public domain, including very sensitive stuff, for example, about the relationship between her mother and Max Broad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, uh, sorry, uh, but isn't there also a law that says that you cannot take out of the country um, certain assets and certain cultural documents and assets. It's not only an ideological thing. I think there's an actual law that forbids it to smuggle out. So this came up, for example, I mean, in part, the, the background of the National Library's aggressive approach in this case was conditioned on some earlier cases, one of which was a famous case involving the estate of the poet Yehuda Michai. Mm-hmm. And basically, my understanding is that uh, his first preference was that his estate, including many unpublished drafts of his, of his poems, would end up in the National Library. My understanding is that they basically screwed up the negotiations, made him feel like they weren't going to take good, they weren't going to be good custodians of this material. And, and the end of the story is that he and his wife decided to sell his archive to Yale. Now, if you want to write a book about Yudamichai, you have to go to Yale, to their library, and consult this material. And that's an example of cultural heritage being exported, mm-hmm. right? So I'm not exactly sure when the law in this case changed, okay. but that's one of the backgrounds that they wanted to 
I'm not sure if overcome. I if I heard correctly, but did you say that the, that uh, Chava was actually uh, wary of releasing this to the public domain because she was afraid that her relation the relationship of her mother and Max Broad that was part of it. So but was also, there a, was there like some kind of an affair there? Menage a trois. I don't know that she she used the word menage a trois. Uh, I just know that the ah. relationship was very close. Let's put it that way. But even I mean, let's say Max Broad was for her a father figure. You don't want your, you, this is a personal familial story for you, right? Mm-hmm. She once told me, she said, um, Kafka for me has been a curse. I said, why is that? She said, if it weren't for the Kafka material, which is only minority of the broad estate, then nobody would be interested in this material. Nobody today has heard of Max Broad if it weren't for his role as the rescuer uh, and savior of Kafka, right? Mm-hmm. It's only because of the material price that we put on on these original Kafka manuscripts that people are interested in getting this estate in the first place. She would have been willing to, to part with that if she could have kept all of what's important to her, which is the the Max Broad story, the Max Broad. He has his own very considerable archive. As I say, he, his correspondence, some of which I've seen, is like a who's who of European, you know, intellectual life. But isn't that being a little bit hypocritical of her? Because in the end of the day, she was blamed for being, um, you know, wanting to sell everything and make a, a load of money out of it. So doesn't it a little bit... Isn't, but isn't that her right? So that's, that's her claim. Her claim was that it's her right to decide whether to sell. In the end, she, and this is how Germany got involved, to come full circle. How did Germany get involved in a court in the Israeli Supreme, in, in a case in the Israeli Supreme Court? For the simple reason that both the mother and the daughter, both Esther and Chava, wished to sell uh, the rest of this material to the literary archive in Marbach. I should mention that Marbach was the buyer of this $2 million manuscript of the trial back in 1988. So they wanted to add. It was a once-in-a-lifetime in a chance to add Kafka to that uh, archive, which I've been there, which is state-of-the-art, which is extremely impressive, right? They simply wanted the right to determine what would happen to that material. If Ours isn't as impressive. Sorry? Ours isn't as impressive. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not a matter of only being impressive. It's also a matter, and this came up in the trial, of um, both physical conditions but also of expertise. It turns out that there's one archivist in the National Library who I interviewed for this book who is capable of dealing with this material, right? And he himself told me, he said, you know, this in Germany there would be a team of 10 people working on this. He's sorting through this material, by the way, as we speak, right, This very in these very days. Spoiler alert. Um, yeah. As one person, right? So it's 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 also just a matter of expertise, right? Wow. So so we got to jump to the end now because what what in the end happened? I mean, you have Chava be uh, fighting for her right to keep these manuscripts. You have the Israeli government that are fighting to basically pull it into the national library, and you have the German uh, government. Pulling, trying to pull it to their national archives. Exactly. And what fascinated me about that day in 2016 when this was being heard in the oral arguments was that there was the legal arguments, right, on the surface, but just boiling beneath the legal arguments were these heavily emotionally charged and historically charged questions, right? So, for example, the, the diaspora question we already mentioned, but there are other questions. The Shoah. So... One of the Israelis said, for example, well, you Germans can't claim to be protectors of anything Kafka. Look at Kafka's three sisters, each of whom was killed in the Holocaust, in the Second World War. Kafka himself, had he survived 
tuberculosis probably would have had the same fate and his papers would have had the same fate right yeah so germany is the last place that kafka's material should be the germans respond in their own way and they said well kafka never stepped foot here he uh belong he wrote in german he doesn't six million jews didn't step foot there too true uh <laughs> Kafka did not uh, use the word Jew once in all of his fiction, okay? Um, so he belongs firmly in the German canon, in the German modernist canon, and he has nothing to do, and you can't claim that he, he was a Zionist. He resisted the pull of Zionism, although Max Brod was involved in the Prague Zionist circles. Um, they made claims like, oh, look, you know, every small town in Germany has at least one Kafka street, because of our obsession with this man. And they correctly, as it turns out, pointed out that not a single town or city in Israel has a Kafka street, right? And basically- There is Max Broad Street, I think. There is though. Max Broad Street, yes. Yeah. Um, but they, they said, you Israelis are latecomers to Kafka, which is also happens to be true. I have a chapter here where basically I look at how Kafka was received in both countries. And it turns out that Kafka was translated very late and very piecemeal into Hebrew. Even to this day, there's no single collected works, right, of Kafka in Hebrew, whereas the Germans, for a long time, they've had a critical edition of the collected works, right? So they portrayed, the Germans tried to portray the Israelis as latecomers. You're only interested because of the, um, let's say, national prestige. Same. Seems to me that both of their arguments just kind of show come to highlight how neither of them have a right to it. <laughs> I mean... Why, man? It's. It, do you agree that it's a, it, it's a heritage treasure? It doesn't matter. What it do you was, mean, It man? was passed on to this Esther woman. She. It's her personal property. No, no one can take it away. But the wheel specifically said... It doesn't matter. I don't, I don't know what? what the rights are, but I don't the think that The wheel said you... that she should give it to an archive. Yeah, but, but you can Although the German is an archive. Germany is also proper archive, yeah. but the National Library made the claim that because we were listed first in that critical paragraph five of Max Brod's will, mm. we are the first, what they call Yoresh Achar Yoresh, we're the first inheritors, where the first inheritors, namely Esther Hoffe, did not fulfill a condition of Max Brod's right, will. That was right, part of the right. legal argument. That was but, if the, but I if think the, that <coughs> once, you, once you pass on property, you can't say, and then you have to do this with it. You, you can give someone your property and that's it. Imagine the Declaration of American Independence was private like were, was given privately to someone or but it wasn't but if it were i mean then it would be a different case <laughs> but it wasn't but that's what i'm saying is that this is a private property it's not some kind of na it isn't any kind of national document it's not a national document i think it has national heritage importance I want to just, if I can, sure. read you a single paragraph from, yeah. from this book that touches on exactly what you were just talking about, which is that Kafka himself, I think, had a premonition of the ways that he would be claimed. And um, he writes in 1916 a letter to his fiancée, whose name was Felice Bauer. And in this letter, he contrasts two recent articles about his work. Uh, one of the articles was by his best friend, Max Broad. And he says this to Felice. Won't you tell me what I really am? In the last, he lists the name of a journal, the writer says, quote, there is something fundamentally German about Kafka's narrative art. In Max Brod's article, in a journal called Der Jude, on the other hand, quote, Kafka's stories are among the most typically Jewish documents of our time. A difficult case, Kafka concludes. Am I a circus rider on two horses? Alas, 
I am no rider, but lie prostrate on the ground. He himself refused, refused to be claimed. That's one of the great ironies of, this, of this, this. This guy who resisted, he never lived in Germany, except for a year at the end of his life. He also never lived here, right? He resisted the pulls of both of these forms of belonging. And yet now, 90 years after his death... It was death, also anti-establishment, I, I think, in a sense, right? In what sense? That he, in the books... I, I, I never read the books. I only know the philosophy. He... He reviews bureaucracy and mm. the system as something faulty, so it may also be relevant to the Yeah, case. sure. He was very much on the side of the individual right. against the faceless bureaucracy. Yep. In that sense, you're absolutely right. Sorry, but so you I'm were saying... No, I'm just, I'm just saying that, that um, he, I think, would have been very amused by this, <laughs> by this case at the Supreme Court. Once he was asked uh, if he would be willing to consider being the editor-in-chief of the most important Jewish journal of that time, Der Jude, which was edited by Martin Buber. When Martin Buber stepped down, somebody asked uh, Kafka, would he consider taking the post? And in the reply, he says, no. <laughs> and he says, what do I have in common with the Jews? I have hardly anything in common with myself. <laughs> to me, that's, that's, nice. that's a Kafkaesque line. right? The individual... The refusal of belonging, the refusal of arrival, the non-arrival. And then I guess that ties into why he just didn't want his works to even live on at all. He might have had a premonition of the ways that they would be claimed in exactly the way they were, that people would, would become possessive. Right, right, right. right. It, it, it's like if Woody Allen would say, what's, with, what's Judaism, what does Judaism have to do with me? Mm -hmm. I oppose it. But he, would he can oppose much... it, but, you know, it has to do with you. Sometimes, whether you like it or not, it's implemented in, in you. That's well, the irony of the statement. The whole it's the a humor. Jew, it's a Jewish statement. It's a Jewish joke. Yeah, it's a the Jewish humor joke. of it. Yeah, and there's, and there's a lot of humor in Kafka. People right. think Kafka is dark and dismal, but there's. Uh, on my book tour in the states recently, I was in San Diego, and I was hosted by a woman who wrote uh, a wonderful biography of called Kafka's Last Love. And it's about his last lover, Dora Diamant, who was from a Hasidic family. She broke from Hasidic orthodoxy and she lived with Kafka for the last couple of years of his life when he was sick. And um, she is turning this, um, her book into a movie, as we speak. And the screenwriter was formerly a screenwriter for Milos Forman. So he was the screenwriter for... Amadeus and one flew over the cuckoo's nest and I and I got to meet him and have dinner with him that that evening and he said look uh, my idea is to turn this um, story of Kafka and Dora Diamant his last love into a romantic comedy you know because all of the treatments of Kafka have been so dour and bleak and there's the Orson Welles movie of the trial which is dark and shadowed and he has this idea, no, let's write it as a romantic comedy, mm -hmm, you know. Mm -hmm. um, has anybody ever depicted Kafka himself in a, in a film? That's a good question. There have been comedy skits, um, but I don't know any of, of Kafka himself. It, he's almost like impossible he's, yeah, to... Yeah, he's larger than life. So how did the trial end? How did it end? So uh, there were these oral, oral arguments in 2016. As I say, um, those were the, the triangle of interest. And shortly after that, the... Um, the Justice Eliakim Rubinstein uh, wrote a long uh, verdict. And each of the verdicts of this case, and there were three of them, are themselves literary documents. And you can tell that each of the judges is having fun 
as they're writing it. They're quoting Kafka. They're quoting Broad. And, and <laughs> yeah, Kim Rubenstein's, and they each run to 50, 60 pages, you know. And, and that the part of what I'm doing in this book is trying to read these legal documents as if they were literary documents, right? As if they were, the judges were themselves interpreters of Kafka, right? Is Kafka mm -hmm. a German writer who happens to be a Jew? Is he a Jewish writer who happens to be writing in German? That's the essence of the case. Eliakim Rubinstein, uh, in the end, hands down this long verdict, the bottom line of which is that Kafka is a Jewish writer who happened to be writing in German. He, he is, uh, both he and Max Brod are national Jewish literary treasures. They belong to the Sifri Alumit, the National Library. What was devastating about this case, and I uh, interviewed Chava several times after the verdict, the verdict that went against her, is that it was constructed legally as an all or nothing, which meant that she had to give up everything from these three locations, all of the manuscripts that she had inherited or was about to inherit from her mother, she had to give everything up to the National Library without a single shekel of compensation. You can imagine her devastation. It's awful. Uh, I was speaking with friends of hers after this, after this verdict, and one of them said, I have a great fear that Chava will, in her despair, light fire to everything, thereby fulfilling in a funny way the original will of Franz Kafka, and also signaling, if I can't have it, nobody will. Did she? She did not. Unfortunately, the tragic end of the story is that she, Chava Hofe, died in August. Um, the sister, Ruti, died during the, the trial. Chava blamed the stresses of the trial for hastening her sister's death. And she herself uh, died in August. And uh, <clears throat> so as we speak, this material is being sorted through at the National Library. I was there on the first day that it was brought from the Tel Aviv bank vaults under armed guard to the National Library in Jerusalem, and uh, I, as the boxes were being opened for the first time, then there was a separate legal maneuver to go only a month ago, only in mid-September, to the Spinoza Swiss. Street, no, to the Spinoza Street apartment, oh. where they retrieved boxes upon boxes of material that they're going through now. And the last step is, as you say, the Swiss, because there's a complication. How, why would a Swiss bank, right, how would a Swiss bank formally recognize the verdict of an Israeli court. So, but that that's going to happen in the next. But are we sure we have weeks. everything from her collection? No, we're not sure because um, Chava told me that there were at least two break-ins to the apartment on Spinoza Street, and stuff was taken. But because there was no there was no catalog, right? <laughs> um, it's impossible to tell. But the lawyer for the National Library I spoke to not long ago said that uh, he's been in touch with the police in Berlin who have seized some of this material and who have, now there's a, proce a legal process of repatriating it to, to Israel. What's so the, going, yeah. going back to the original, uh, I just want to do a quick review. So Max Broad, when he left to Esther these manuscripts, he said explicitly, I want you to have them, but then at the end, before you die, I want you to pass them on to... A specifically proper, the Jewish a proper archive such as the National Library in Jerusalem or another library here or abroad that was and the there, language. are there are there laws regarding uh, uh, property rights that have to do with that in Israel that have to do with 
can you entrust someone with something for their lifetime? Sure, you can do that. Yeah. You can absolutely condition uh, a will like that on whatever conditions you want, as long as they're within reason. And that condition was ruled valid, and they ruled that uh, Esther, the mother, instead of fulfilling that condition, uh, by, betr by not fulfilling that condition at the point of her death, then it reverts to the state. That was essentially the argument that the, each of the three steps of the, of the court case uh, affirmed. And we must not forget that in the end of the day, these documents weren't Max Broads, legally. They're not yours either. They're not the... They're nobodies. They're not, they should be burned. They're nobodies. If nobodies. we really want to fulfill wills, we it's should not, burn It wasn't them. a will, though. It was what a note. Mean? It was a note. It was a note. I gave a talk about this case. What's a will? I gave okay, a we have an expert here, so... <laughs> I gave a talk about this judge. case at uh, Yad Vashem to a group of visiting German educators, and I asked their opinion of what should be done, and one of the educators said... I think that the National Library, after digitizing everything, should burn the originals. <laughs> to, well, which, to which I couldn't help myself. It's a very German To which I couldn't approach. help myself. And I said, yeah, the Germans don't exactly have a great record, track record, in burning manuscripts <laughs> yeah. and books. Wow. wow. But it's also worth mentioning and emphasizing that the Hoffe sisters weren't... They were odd birds, right? You got to sit with them. Uh, maybe you can elaborate a little bit about that. Well, part of what made... Sane isn't the best word to describe. Yes. Uh... I th well, <laughs> let me say this. Um, Chava was very difficult to get to know. I, I really, uh, at a certain point, realized that I could only write this book if I had her voice among the three. And uh, it was a long process of gaining her trust because she was very mistrustful for a couple of reasons. One is that there was a writer in uh, Haaretz who followed this case who was basically single-handedly responsible for portraying her as an eccentric, greedy cat lady. And she resented that. The second was is that in 2011, I think, there was an Israeli film done, a documentary about this mm -hmm. case called Kafka's Last Story, where the documentarians essentially laid an ambush for her outside of the Spinoza Street apartment, kind of chased her down the street. It was very, to my mind, tasteless and, and kind of vulgar. And, and these experiences, you know, she didn't appreciate that, being a very private person. When I finally was able to, to get to know her a little bit, I actually didn't find that she was eccentric. I, I thought that, I mean... That's the thing in this case is that there are no good guys in, in essence. There are no blameless people, starting with Max Broad himself, despite all of his dedication. Uh, each of the, the three sides has, I think, some legitimacy, but also has li limits on that legitimacy. So um, as to Chaba herself, I had a lot of sympathy for her. Uh, at the same time, she and her mother could have done things differently. There were points at compromise, one of which was um, mediated by former ambassador to the UN, Gabriela Shalev. Even she couldn't bring the, the three sides together. Um, there were points at which um, uh, the Hofes could have made material available to researchers who were desperate to see some of this stuff, you know, very qualified people, etc. So, yes, I think that, that you're right. I, I, I tried to um leave it actually to the reader to determine for the, for him or herself the the moral dilemmas here you know some moral dilemmas are more clear-cut than others um there's this case maybe you know of the woman in gold it was made into a movie it was the case of the klimt painting that was uh, looted from a kind of aristocratic jewish family in vienna right there you have a clear-cut case in the sense that the the state 
you know, had appropriated property that was, that, that uh, the provenance was um, clearly looted, right? Mm-hmm. Um, here, uh, in this, it's a more morally entangled case. And that's, for me, what made it sort of personally more interesting to follow. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. Um, so where can we find... Uh, Wait, the... before, before that, yeah. one last question. Were there revelations in the material? In what sense? I mean... <clears throat> a new story, something sensational. They're being sorted know. through as we speak. Okay. I doubt that there's going to be some masterpiece that hasn't been seen before. Because as I said, Max Broad dedicated himself all those years to publishing the masterpieces. There are the originals of the masterpieces, but I'm, I'm skeptical that there's going to be something, a short story. There are already things that we haven't yet seen from Kafka. Um, I myself have seen a description that he wrote in 1909 of his high school years. I saw a postcard that he wrote home from uh, Weimar, where he and Max were visiting the uh, the house of Goethe, which is like a pilgrimage place, right? And he's writing back home. As I say, there's Max Broad's diaries, which nobody has seen before. I think there, there, there will be very important material there, but I don't think that they're going to be sort of new, you know, Kafka... Um, you know. And it will all be available for the public eventually, you think? Yeah, so that was part of the Supreme Court decision and part of the commitment made by the National Library in Jerusalem that they will digitize the most important things. It's going to take a long time, and as I understand, one of the final ironies of this case is that the National Library will have to depend on German funding to complete this digitization <laughs> like project. Like this whole country, basically. Exactly. Now you can... So where can we find the book? Uh, this book is available on Amazon.com. It's uh, in several bookstores already here. It's going to be coming out in several languages. I'm going tomorrow evening to launch the Russian edition of this book at the Moscow International Book Fair. And it's most importantly, for me at least, it's coming out in German in February. And I'll be very curious to see how the Germans react to it, because I say some very critical things, I would say, about the Germans. And maybe I'll just end with this. I interviewed the director of the Marbach Archive about this case. Mm -hmm. And he was very hesitant to talk because he had also been sort of, um, you know, uh, what's the word? surprised in a way by the by the international press around this and the last thing that a german director of a german cultural institution wants is to be portrayed as trying to seize something from the jewish state mm -hmm. so he uh, told me something very interesting and maybe with this we'll close the question is not just what is the worth of individual um, originals in this era of digitization but a far more um interesting question which is why does it matter where an archive or a literary estate ends up geographically or physically and he said it does matter and he says if the kafka archive ends up in jerusalem then kafka will be read narrowly as a jewish writer if on the other hand he ends up here in germany then he'll be read universally right and i thought to myself how interesting that only a few decades after the second world war this director of one of the great German cultural institutions is unselfconsciously assuming that the Israelis are the particularists who have interests, and we, the Germans, represent universal European culture or humanism as such. Some people Damn. never change, right? Wow. So, guys, Kafka's last trial, the case of a literary legacy, Benjamin Balint. Uh, check it out on Amazon. Kindle. And on Kindle, there's even an audio version these days. Did you read? 
I don't read it myself. Okay. No. And uh, uh, bookstores throughout And the U.S.? Yes, throughout the U.S., even some in Jerusalem that I've seen so far. Will there be a book tour in America? There has been a book tour in America already. Okay. Um, I may do another one. And um, I'm, uh, the book is coming out in England in March. So I'll be in London at the International Jewish Book Fair in London in March. And uh, I'm still hoping to get an Israeli publisher. So I'll, I'll welcome any suggestions to that. And end. translate to Hebrew. Yes. And uh, Benjamin Balint also writes for uh, the Wall Street Journal. Uh, does book reviews and writes an, an occasional column. So guys, look out for uh, we'll Benjamin Balint. Yeah. yeah. And social media. Media, if someone wants to contact you yeah I'll give you the social media okay uh, we'll information it. and uh, I just wanted to thank you for hosting me in such a thank, thank you for you. coming an intelligent way thank you thank you thank you for telling the story so eloquently yeah um, guys before we go uh, we have a collaboration with the Jewish journal uh, jewishjournal.com they're a new source out in uh, LA um, they have great columns as well so check Podcasts, them out jewishjournal.com like David yeah. Suisse's podcast And we accept donations, guys. So please go to twinjb.com slash donate. It was Tuesday giving something day yeah. yesterday. Was it? Yeah. Tuesday gives or something like that. So for us, every day is Tuesday giving day. <laughs> so uh, go ahead and help us out because we do it on our free time. Benjamin, thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me. And good luck with thank the book. You. Thank you. Thanks. Bye, Bye. guys. Bye.